All right, everyone. Uh, if you would, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15. It's uh, on page 10 of your uh, pew Bible there. This morning we're studying what is perhaps one of the most important events in the entire Bible. Abram, who's not yet been renamed by God as Abraham, is a man of great faith, but he also has concerns. It has likely been at least 10 years since God had promised Abraham not only a son, but that his offspring would be as plentiful as the sand on the seashore. And so he's got questions for God. What's going on with my life, Lord? Things are not working out as I envision them. I mean, when the God of the universe says, go where I am sending you and I will give you a son, you think, well, I've done what you've asked me to do. You'd think maybe nine months later there would be a baby boy. But it's been a decade, and Sarai and I are not getting any younger. If you've been a Christian, even if for just a short bit, you perhaps likely have had questions and doubts and concerns. What are you to do with them? In the passage we're about to read, Abram speaks to God, and God speaks to Abram, and then God does something amazing for Abram, something in which God demonstrates how he has laid hold of us so that in faith we may lay hold of him. Genesis chapter 15. <clears throat> After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will, you, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of from Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. 
but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if you want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this word towards us. Yes, it was 4,000 years ago, but it is so important for us to understand that you are the God, faithful God, covenant God, who walks down the pieces for your people, who brings upon himself the curse that we deserve. Help us to have eyes to see this, but not just to see it, but to rejoice with great joy. Amen. Can I trust you? We've all expressed this sentiment in various situations throughout our lives, whether it's a spouse or a teacher or a boss or an elected official. We've all had moments where we face doubts about another person, have we not? But how many of us are honest enough to admit that we've had doubts and concerns and questions in a similar way towards God. Even those of you who've been walking with God for a long time, how many of you still have thoughts in your head like, I thought my life would be far different than it is. What's going on here, Lord? Or you're humbled by how far short your daily walk with the Lord still is, and you cannot help but think, God has every right to hit the pause button on my life. As Ian DeGood writes, as Christians, we live in the reality gap. There seems to be a huge difference between what God has promised and what you see now. It doesn't matter what the situation is or the circumstances are or how long it's been since you've professed faith in Christ. Each and every one of us will have moments where we doubt God's delight in us. We doubt his unwavering love and attention and commitment towards us. And even when we know we can trust him, we still wonder, is it all worth it? Helen Keller is known to have said, I believe God won't give me anything I can't handle. I just wish he didn't trust me so much. Walking with God, living in faith, is anything but easy. There are moments or days or even seasons where God either seems distant or disengaged or disinterested, and we are left with the nagging question, can I trust him, is it worth it? 
In our passage this morning, God speaks to Abram words that are meant to answer his doubts. But not just his doubts, our doubts too. That's why it's in the Bible. God spoke to Abram in verse 1, Fear not, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. A shield is an object you got to lay hold of, right, to pick it up. God is saying, lay hold of me. And the big idea for us this morning is this. There is no greater good in our lives than for us to lay hold of God. But laying hold of an unseen God requires faith. And even when you do believe, you can find yourself questioning what you believe and doubting God's goodness towards you. So this morning, we'll take a look at what it looks like to lay hold of God. We'll do that under three headings. First, we'll see faith wrestles, then faith reaches, and then faith rests. First, faith wrestles. Big idea here is this. Abram shows us that laying hold of God involves wrestling with God. And here's what we need to take to heart. God welcomes our wrestling. In fact, if you notice in the text, it is God who initiates this wrestling with Abram. Look at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. Chapter 15 begins with these words, after these things. So what are the these things? Well, they're the things of chapter 14. In chapter 14, Abram rescued Lot, and he had a mighty victory over five kings and their armies. And Abram only had 318 fighting men. And afterwards, God went, or Abram went, and he worshiped God, and he gave a tithe to Melchizedek. It was after these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Fear not. Why, why would Abram be fearing? He just won a mighty victory. Well, it could be a number of reasons. Certainly one of them is he no doubt just ticked off five angry kings who still had fighting men, probably far more than 318. They could attack at any moment. God is reassuring Abram. He's saying, as I was your military offense, so I shall be your military defense. Then God adds, your reward shall be very great. You know, normally when you defeat an army in battle, you get to keep the spoils of the war, all their stuff. But Abram, if you recall, would not take the spoils from the defeated kings because of the wickedness that was attached to them. He went away empty-handed. There was no reward for the victory. Have you ever done the right thing, but it cost you a lot? You found yourself thinking, I got no reward. Well, here God is assuring Abram that though he may not yet have the reward, he has the God of reward. It's as if God knows what's going through Abram's head. And guess what? He knows what's going through your head each and every moment of every day. Christian, isn't it true that often your greatest spiritual highs are followed by seasons of lows? 
of despondency, of questioning. This is normal. Remember when Elijah defeated the priests of Baal with an incredible display of God's power, and right after that, he became so depressed he wanted to take his own life. Or when Jonah preached and all of Nineveh repents, then he falls into bitterness and despair. And here, Abram, having just experienced an amazing day of worshiping God for for him leading Abram into victory, but now he finds himself off of the spiritual high and in the valley of fear. And so notice, my friends, it's God who comes to Abram. It's God who speaks the word of grace. God says, fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your rewards will be very great. Oh, the love of God that looks into his people's hearts and says, fear not, the reward will be great. My friends, the entire Bible is one big story of God coming down in grace and saying, fear not. And do you see what God is doing to Abram? He's calling Abram to mine the depths of his relationship with God and lay hold of him. When God assures us, he points us first to who he is, his character, his power. And then he points us to his promises. You know, much of our Christian doubts would be remedied if we would take time to mine the depths of God's character, his faithfulness, his power, and that we would mine his promises, that we would search scriptures which are alive, Now, no sooner does God declare himself Abram's shield and great rewarder, but then Abram starts to wrestle with God. Verse 2, Abram says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. In the air of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my own household, a servant, will be my heir. Here we see that Abram has this reward on his mind. God had promised him a long time back that his offspring would be as plentiful as the sand on the seashore, but it hasn't happened. Abram has drafted his last will and testament, and his servant Eliezer is the sole heir. Now, do you see what Abram's doing, though? Bruce Waltke writes, Abram complains out of his faith, not his unbelief. It takes spiritual energy of faith to complain in contrast to despairing in silence. And yet, think about it. How often do we despair in silence? Many Christians live this way. Perhaps you, too. It's the stoical approach to living in this fallen world. We we think things like times are tough and I don't know why I'm going through this difficult patch, but I'm not going to bother seeking God. I guess it's just the cross I have to bear. This sounds like faith, but faith wrestles with the promises of God. Let me ask you, is there something in your life in which you need to wrestle with God? And how does God respond to Abram here? This is amazing. He doesn't roll his eyes. He doesn't give him the silent treatment. 
No, he walks outside and he puts his arm around him and he points up to the heavens and he says, my son, you see all those stars? Can't even count them, can you? Well, you're not only going to have a son, but that's how plentiful your offspring will be. Listen, God condescends to the emotional level of Abram so that he can impress upon him his gracious and loving intent. And Christian, how much more has God communicated that to to us 4,000 years later? Compare the revelation that Abram had to what we have today. One commentator writes, the content of God's revelation to Abram was slim. It consisted of a brief oracle promising that the Lord would turn him into the embodiment of blessing. It was not much, but that's what it means to live by faith. God reveals himself to us, and we we respond to him trustingly, taking him at his word, end quote. My friends, today we have all the words from God that we need in our holy scriptures. And oh, that we would wrestle with God with his word on our laps. May we not be stoics, but maybe prayerfully search the scriptures. May we recognize that doubts are great opportunities for growth. May we lift our voices and say, God, what will you give me? So first, faith wrestles. Next, faith reaches. Abram hears afresh from God. God God's promises are restated and expanded. And how does Abram respond? He reaches out to God. He lays hold of him. Look at the beginning of verse 6. And he believed the Lord. The words translated believed means that Abram considered God true, reliable, trustworthy, The verb tense in the Hebrew is one that conveys an ongoing activity or a continually repeating action. Believing God was Abram's way of living. Day in, day out, he believed. Yes, Abram wrestles, but he also continually reaches to lay hold of God. Now look closely at the rest of verse 6. It's remarkable. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord, he counted it to him as righteousness. The word counted means to, to credit one account, one's account. It's a, it's a banking term, like when you deposit your paycheck or it gets automatically deposited in your account. Your bank credits your account. The money shows up in there. God credited Adam's account with righteousness. That is, God declared Adam, uh, um, Adam, well, that too, Abram, righteous by virtue, virtue simply of his belief, his faith. You know, these words of Abram are quoted four times in the New Testament so that they must be trying to tell us some important truth. See, peace with God is not something you earn from God. It is a gift to be received by faith. Abram believed the Lord, and he, God, 
counted it to him, Abram, his righteousness. You know, we all have a righteousness problem. None of us are the people we know we should be, let alone the people God calls us to be. And so we all have a dilemma, a righteousness dilemma. How can we, human beings, be righteous? How can we have the moral record that God accepts, the record God requires? You know, many today say, well, God just needs to lower his standards. Compared to others, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. So God just needs to lower the standards, accept my record, stamp it good. Now, I wish this was the way in which Harvard uh, would respond to my application when I was filling out all those applications back, uh, back in high school. Well, they just need to lower their standards and Mark Middlecoff could get in. You know, none of us would ever ask Harvard to lower its standards. So then why do we expect God to? But here's the beautiful thing about God. God cannot lower his standards of righteousness, but he will credit you the righteousness you need if you would but admit you need it and lay hold of it by faith. It would be like Harvard calling me at the end of my high school career and saying, we've credited your account with a perfect SAT score, fantastic references, and full tuition. That is what God has done. He credits your account with the full righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the life you should have lived, and he died the death that you deserve. He's paid the penalty. That's how God is able to credit your account. All we do is just believe. Just lay hold of it, like we see Abraham do here. His righteousness is credited to our account. Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He reached out and laid hold of God's grace. And it seems like this was his regular routine. Guess what? So too all who walk by faith. So faith wrestles and faith reaches. Lastly, faith rests. Right after Abram believes, God speaks again. And just like before, Abram has a but. Abram's deeper faith has caused him to wrestle with even more questions and doubts. In verse 7, God says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. It's the promised land. He says, your, your people are going to be in Egypt for 400 years, but then they're going to come out and it'll be theirs. And Abram responds by saying, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? In other words, he's saying, yes, I hear you, Lord, but how am I to know? Put me at rest. My friends, these are not the cries of the faithless. This is how the faithful respond. You've done this too, have you not? God, your promise to me is that you provide for my daily needs, and so I just want to know how. Your word says it's not good to be alone, and yet I'm alone, and I've been looking for a spouse for so many years now. How, how am I to know that you will care for all my longings? God gives Abram a sign that causes him to rest. 
literally and figuratively. And it's a sign for us today, too. What is it that God does? He enters into a covenant with Abram. A covenant that still stands, though God has expanded upon it far greater now through Jesus Christ. First, what is a covenant and how is it different than a contract? You know, many today treat marriage as a contract. It's not. It's a covenant. We enter into contracts to prepare for failure. We enter into covenants to prepare us for success. A contract stipulates how everything gets divvied up when the poop hits the fan. A covenant stipulates how everything holds together when the poop hits the fan. Ten years ago, I performed a wedding in Montauk. It was a full-on Nigerian wedding. Beautiful headdresses and dresses of the ladies. Even the king of Nigeria was at the wedding. And I botched it. You have to ask me later about that. (laughs) But it's a funny story. I don't have time for it. But here's the vows that the groom uh, took. and And the bride had similar vows. I, Emeka, take you, Julianne, to be my wedded wife. And I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health as long as we both shall live. That's not contract language. That's covenant language. After the vows, the minister um, from Nigeria um, delivered the homily. And he started off by saying, I did not travel all the way from Nigeria to witness the signing of a contract. I did not drive all the way out from Queens to witness the signing of a contract. I came to witness a covenant. In the ancient days, covenants were entered into often between a powerful king and a less powerful king or ruler. And there would be this formal ceremony and they would write everything down and they they would stipulate the promises from each person and what they were to uphold. And then they would also stipulate curses if they were to have failed. And then they take part in a ritual. They take animals, they sacrifice them, they cut them in two, and they lay them out to form an aisle that could be walked down. And as the, both kings would walk through these dead animal carcasses, they would declare on themselves what's called a self-maledictory oath. They would say, so shall it be to me if I fail to uphold my part of the covenant. Bring this curse upon me if I fall short. Each person is saying, I shall be cursed like these animals if I shall fail my promises. So listen, even this is what a covenant's about. Even if the other party fails, I am bound to fulfill my promises. Now, can you see why marriage is not a contract? It's a covenant. Now let's get back to our passage. God has Abram get all these animals and cut them in half, except for the birds, and and he lays them on the ground in in that fashion. And then the sun went down. It got really dark and scary. But God put Abram at rest physically. 
And then God spoke these covenant promises to Abram. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in Egypt for 400 years. Then I will deliver them. And as for you, you're going to live into your old age, and you're going to rest in peace. Now, I want you to notice something incredible. So incredible that it should cause us to rest forever in the promises of God towards us. What happens in verse 17? It's dark, and behold, a smoking pot and a flaming torch pass between these pieces. That's weird. Now, if it's a covenant ceremony, aren't, isn't Abram supposed to walk down this aisle with God? Now, God obviously is, is, hasn't yet taken on human form, so he'll have some sort of representative, a smoking pot or a flaming torch. But why two representations of God? Why? Why isn't Abram going down? Abram's asleep. He's in a deep sleep. It's, it's, he's experiencing this in some sort of vision. Two things go down the aisle, a smoking pot and a flaming torch. What are they? What do they represent? Well, God being a spirit couldn't physically be present, so he has a smoking pot and a flaming torch to represent him. So the good question to ask is, why two representations for God? Why one representation for him and the other representation for Abram? It's amazing. It shows us how much God loves us. Listen, he, God knows that Abram and his offspring and us will fail to uphold our part of the covenant promises. So God will not let Abram walk down that aisle. He will not let Abram and his offspring experience the curse that would rightly fall upon them. So instead, God takes Abram's place. You see what's happening? I mean, it's astonishing. God will not let Abram walk the aisle, for certainly the curse would fall on him and his offspring. So God takes his part in the covenant ceremony. He is saying, when you fail, and you will, I will take the curse for you. One commentator puts it this way. God is saying, I will not only pay the penalty if I fail to do my part, but I will pay the penalty if you fail to do your part. I would rather be torn apart than see my relationship to you be broken. He continues, and of course, Abram had no idea what this promise and oath would cost God. Years later, Isaiah understood the implications when he said of the Messiah that he would be cut off from the land of the living as he paid the price for his people's sins. To be cut off was the covenant curse. God really would become one of those animal pieces. I hope you see this, that covenant ceremony way back then points us towards Christ and his work on the cross. Jesus, God in the flesh, becomes a curse, cut off from the land of the living for God's people. God fulfilled his promise to Abram that God himself would bear the penalty if Abram and his offspring failed to be faithful. Now, how does this covenant put us at rest? 
two ways. First, it is God who walked down the animal pieces representing himself. This is not the owner of your local auto repair shop. (laughs) This is the almighty, sovereign, and true God. And since it is impossible for God to break this covenant, we may be at rest. The second way is that God, who walked down the animal pieces, he did so representing us. God substituted himself for you, and he took the curses you deserve. And he has done this once and for all. This means that God's relationship with you can never be broken by you. Astonishing. Christ has already fulfilled all your obligations on your behalf, all of them. His perfect life, all of it is credited to you. It's in your bank account. You might not feel that way today, but that's who you are. Fully righteous as a gift of grace. As Paul writes at the end of chapter 8 in the book of Romans, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. And so, how can we rest when we experience doubts? How is it that we can know God will not fail us? because God would not let Abram participate in that ceremony. Instead, God walked down the aisle for Abram and for us. And so when you doubt, and you will, when you have questions, we must look at the cross. For there we see God's costly righteousness given to us. Truthfully, what else could we really ask for? What greater reward could we ask for from God? Listen, God can't always give us what we want or explain all of his divine reasons for why things happen to us. But he has given us his son and we can rest. Well, hopefully this morning we've seen that there's no greater good in our lives and for us to lay hold of God. We were created by him, and we've been made by him for a relationship with him. So, when we come to the Lord's Supper, may we lay hold of him afresh. Like Abram, who continues and continually believes. May we know that true faith isn't blind. It might not see everything as clearly as God sees it, but it's not blind. And genuine faith wrestles with God. It cries out to God and asks, what will you give me? How will I know? Maybe this week we can ask those two questions. What will you give me? And how will I know? Genuine faith has doubts. 
and doubts are opportunities for spiritual and emotional growth. God welcomes your doubts when they're mixed with faith and a longing to know him. As we wrestle, God reveals himself. And so we reach out more and more, and we lay hold of him by faith more and more. And God has given us great cause to be at rest in our doubting. He has entered into an everlasting covenant of grace. He has pledged himself, and he has given us his son. Because he has laid hold of us, let us lay hold of him. Let's pray. Father, really seems like way too good to be true. Like, this is who you are. You are a covenant-keeping God. More than that, you are the God who will not let us take the curse. And so with great love, you, you walked out in that aisle. We thank you for that. We thank you even more so for the cross of Jesus, how in Christ we don't just have our sins forgiven, but his righteousness is credited to us simply by believing. May this give us light today, we pray. Amen.